I've been reading the Gospels um, for a number of years now and over the last little period I've been struck afresh almost every time I read them how outrageous these stories are. How jarring with our credulity, our sense of what is believable they are. I mean, imagine an event like this occurring today. Imagine what our media would do with it. I mean, there'd be all sorts of angles to this story, not least, of course, this extraordinary event that a seemingly dead person has come alive. Now, there'd be the current affairs investigations. Was the person really dead? Was it the same person? Was this some kind of trick of the light? Was it a group hallucination? What really went on there? And should it be established that actually, yes, a dead person came alive again because another person called them forth? Well, imagine the media storm over that. There'd be a series of interviews and backgrounding and all the stuff that goes on about who is this person and then on the other side, what does it mean for you now that your son who you thought was dead is now alive and then months later the follow-up interviews, what's it like three months down the track since, you know? It'd go on and on, it'd be a circus. This is an incredible story. We all know death is normally final, right? We do know that. Somebody dies, we're not really expecting them to come up alive again. It's not part of what we anticipate with death. Our working assumption is when a person dies, they're dead. And we might have beliefs about the afterlife, but in terms of this life, we're not expecting them to engage again. Apart from the grief struggle of acceptance, we know that um, eventually we have to come to terms with saying goodbye. Even our uh, ideas of eternal life don't generally involve people showing up again in this life, do they? We, we can hold beliefs about eternal life, but we don't expect them to suddenly be walking around with us or going to the shops or that kind of thing. It's not part of what we anticipate. And these beliefs are built on long experience and patterns that have been consistent over generation upon generation. People do not get up after they are dead. We know that, right? I'm not the only one who knows that. Good. Now, shared assumptions are very, very persuasive. Just step sideways from the story for a moment. When we believe something together, it easily becomes unquestionable. It moves into the background of assumed reality. It forms the parameters of what we think is ultimately possible because we're not talking about it. It's not up for grabs anymore. It's what we just know, know is true. Things like gravity are very sure to us. You know, we stick to the, the earth somehow and we just know that that's true. We know the planetary scale of the physics that creates that. And um, things like economic systems, they seem really sure as well, although they're less sure. And we know from global financial crises and ongoing ripples and 
In fact, some people in the financial area are sort of going, we're not sure how this house of cards is going to stand up over the next little while. But even so, we feel fairly sure about it. We don't have another plan. Governments are less sure. Um, We used to know when we elected a a Prime Minister we would have them for the next term of government. We don't know that anymore, do we? The last two periods of government we've had a change of sitting Prime Minister. Unprecedented. Things, you know, the assumptions we used to have might be coming less sure. Okay, back into the story. That was just about shared assumptions. In a way, the finality of death is on a par with the certainty of gravity, isn't it? We just know it's there. It's part of what holds us in our experience of life. Once upon a time, people thought the earth was flat because everywhere you walked, it was kind of flat. You couldn't see the curve. Once upon a time, people thought that the planets revolved around the earth. And if you're not good at that kind of thing, let me assure you they don't. They revolve around the sun. I remember in my early childhood, we believed that East and West Germany would never be reunited again. And suddenly one day in my late 20s, this thing happened. It was unprecedented and unexpected and the wall came down. Jesus engages something here that is seemingly absolute and settled and unnegotiable. Jesus speaks to the dead man and calls him back to life. And the crazy thing is, he gets up. Nobody expected it. It was unprecedented. The shared assumptions of the group didn't know what to do with it. It was just crazy. Jesus challenges one of the most fundamental fundamental assumptions of life that when you die, you die. And he goes, no, not so much. Now, I don't know what you do with that story because as you sit here in your 21st century world and you don't know anyone who's ever come back by being called forth by a prophet or whatever, It's hard to believe, isn't it? But I tell you, there's harder things to believe than that. Much harder things to believe. I think it's hard to believe that Jesus interrupted this funeral. Can you imagine that? Imagine a funeral going on and someone just comes in and goes, nah, stop a minute, don't cry you, you know, just because you lost your son or whatever. And uh, imagine the gall. as as it were. Um, This was unprecedented behaviour. There's a grieving community. They're going through a process of coming to terms with something that's so hard to come to terms with. And then Jesus just reverses it all. I find that hard to believe. How did he... What's going on there? I imagine the people involved could barely believe what was happening. Because when you're in a grief process, you know, life's a bit strange. If you've lost someone close to you, you know what it's like. Things are not normal and you're struggling with the parameters of what's real and what isn't and all that kind of stuff. It's all a bit surreal. And then Jesus comes in and does this incredibly surreal thing. And he touches the coffin. 
Now, this is a big no-no. You don't touch the dead in the ancient Near Eastern culture. And he comes in and the, and the pallbearers stop. And they don't stop because they think, you know, the guy's going to come alive. They stop because you just touched the coffin. You don't do that. You're breaking the rules. We have rules about this. This is how it happens. You don't do that. What's going on? It's disrespectful and unclean. Jesus is being incredibly subversive and upsetting all at the same time. It's hard to imagine how Jesus could have been more confronting in his actions. When we sit here and think the dead rising are the most traumatic or confronting or difficult to believe part of the story, I think the other bits are probably were harder for the people at the time. The dead rising would have been much easier for them to come to terms with. This is a major disruption. And you know what? The intervention of God is a major disruption. When God intervenes, and you might have all sorts of different ways of understanding that concept, but it disrupts the normal. It changes what we can normally expect, what everybody assumes will happen. It changes that. When the dead are called into life, things do not simply proceed as normal. Expectations are shattered. Rehearsed responses become redundant. We can't just go through the motions and pretend everything is the same as it was. The established culture has no guidelines for the intervention of God. It's distressing, it's unsettling, it's threatening. It always has been. I wonder if you think about that when you pray for the intervention of God. Because that's really what we're asking. We're asking for God to come in and unsettle the apple cart, to mix things up, to bring about a different outcome to the one we could expect without the intervention of God. And it's distressing and unnerving and confidence-shaking in a way. So why would, he, why would Jesus even do this thing that is so confronting and upsetting? The indicators would seem that very quickly he became aware this is a widow and the one in the box is her only son. Now again, in the comfort of our 21st century uh, relatively incredible safety net of social welfare and so forth, you know, that happens, that's okay. In first century Middle Eastern times, she was gone. She had no identity, she had no financial security, she had no capacity to get either of those things. She was an old woman. She couldn't work. She didn't mean anything in the society without a man. She was completely vulnerable without a man to stand up for her. We have so little concept. I mean, dare I say, even homeless people in our society are in a much better place than this woman would have been. She was so incredibly vulnerable as a result of her only son dying. 
Jesus observes this and is moved to action, I believe, by her dire situation. Because there's no personal advantage in this for Jesus. He's not doing it like a, a politician might do it, or a, you know, going out to the fish markets or up to the, the thingo packers or whatever and going, oh, yes, uh, really good and vote for me kind of thing. Jesus isn't trying to get followers at this point. How do we know that? Because his actions are not of that nature. I mean, people go away talking about him, but he doesn't hold a rally afterwards and go, okay, right, boys, from here on in, we're going to be raising the dead and we're going to take the Romans by storm. And, you know, he has no political agenda that's evident in this scenario. In fact, if the story is to be believed, he just disappears after this event. Like in the upheaval that goes on, people are talking and confused and wondering and celebrating and coming to terms and he's not even there then. There's no reference to him after that. He's gone. Doesn't milk it. Doesn't take advantage of it. He's seeing somebody in distress and responding to their distress. Even though it's going to cause some distress, but he's responding to the most vulnerable person in the whole scenario. Everybody else will, will do okay. You know, they'll come to terms with what's happened. He's responding to the most vulnerable. And he brings the son back to life. Imagine a current day political leader who could do something remotely as powerful as that. Imagine how we would be hearing about it. In it. it wouldn't be jobs and growth. No, it would be uh, death and life. I could be life. You know, they'd be walking around and spruiking it at every breath. Posters of it, there'll be YouTube videos, there'll be all sorts of things. They would take this to the bank and Jesus doesn't. He does what he does for the woman who has the need and then he just disappears. This intervention was about this person. It was about his love for her. Where God comes near, there is disruption. That's how we know God has come near. Sometimes we think that God is our best thought kind of on steroids or God is our desire met in a way that just gives us all the good things we want. No, most often God comes near and it's disruption. It's not only what we didn't ex expect, it's what we could never have possibly imagined in our wildest dreams. When the psalmist says he gives us the desires of our hearts, he doesn't say he satisfies our desires. He gives us new desires in our hearts. That is the disruption. We change. We desire new things. We become new people and we become part of the disruption in a sense. Shared assumptions that pass for certainties are exposed as shared assumptions. They're not certainties. And there's a whole bunch of them in all our social interactions that go on all the time that we think that's just the way life has to work. But of course it doesn't. It gets blown open when God comes near. Christ's call to life is not constrained by the world's assumptions. 
the response of love pushes past socially accepted norms and can sometimes appear to be reckless because when we love, we are not constrained by proper behaviour. We love. We do that which is good for the one whom we love. And sometimes proper behaviour just goes by the by. Actions of love tend to challenge the status quo. The status quo is about order and sustainable systems and how we're going to manage things in the long term. Love is willing to go beyond safe options and risk all for the one who is loved. And we see that in Jesus. I mean, if Jesus wanted a long-term plan, he could have lived to 70. All that walking and healthy eating, I'm sure he would have done well. No, he loved and it was reckless and it cost him everything. This is the love of the cross. Nothing is more certain than the love of God. It breaks open all our shared assumptions which pass for certainties and disrupts everything. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us so completely, almost seemingly recklessly. But that is your commitment to us. And you call us into that love, into the kingdom of your love and we are called into that behaviour, that lifestyle that doesn't just accept the assumed norms but does that which is loving, that which is good, even when it disrupts. Thank you that you have shown us the way. We know it's risky. But what else would we do? Who else has the words of eternal life? We bless you for calling us into it. In your precious name. Amen.